great pleasure to welcome you to this Mitchell Institute conversation, one of a series of podcasts being organised here at the Senator George J. Mitchell Institute for Global Peace, Security and Justice at Queen's University Belfast. My name is Richard English, I'm Director of the Institute, and it's a real pleasure and privilege for me today to welcome my guest on this podcast, Professor Colin Harvey. Professor Harvey is Professor of Human Rights Law here at Queen's University Belfast and is a Fellow of the Mitchell Institute. Professor Harvey's research has involved in publishing very widely and influentially on human rights law and on constitutional law. And Colin, it's a great pleasure to have you in the conversation today. I wondered if we could start, Colin, with you saying something about your research to date, about the main themes, contributions and arguments to give listeners a sense of the academic work that you've done. Th thank you very much, Richard. Very much appreciate the opportunity uh, to, to talk with you today and really very, very pleased to be associated with the, the Mitchell Institute and all its really very significant work, both that it's done and the work work ahead as well. One of the things that these podcasts do is they, they make you retrofit your academic career in terms of summing it up. But if I was to to, to sum it up, my, my, my academic work has really been in three broad phases. I think the first phase of my research career circled around really the, the rights of refugees, asylum seekers and, and, and migrants. And that's really how, how I got, got started. I was thinking about it the other day that, and actually one of the first things I, I did after university was work for an NGO in London around the rights of overseas domestic workers in London at the time. And that really spurred me on to think about the way in which refugees, asylum seekers and migrants are treated. And that was a big part of my early research career, um, you know, my leading publications at that stage were on the human rights of refugees, asylum seekers and, and, and migrants. I suppose the second broad, broad theme in sort of retrospectively retrofitting career is around human rights institutions and processes really a broad theme and sort of second phase of my work has been around human rights institutions, human rights commissions, uh, for example, around questions around institutions like financial institutions and human rights and how you operationalize some of these norms and practice. And also around bills of rights, not just here, but around the world as well. Again, and the broad theme there would be really how you make these things meaningful in practice, how you operationalize rights. And thirdly, again, tidying up or other untidy research career would be around constitutional change, constitutionalism and rights mainly and most recently impacted by the B word Brexit or the U word UK exit and issues around constitutional change on these islands. A lot of my publications, funding and research in the last few years has been focused on that. But in thinking about today, I suppose I'm coming up to nearly 30 years of an academic uh, research career. Sometimes you're only known for your most recent work, but, but I've done other things as well. If I was to encapsulate it, I suppose I've been thinking about law as a tool for social change. And that's really animated a lot of what I've done, both in terms of my academic work, but also my work in wider society. And central to that has really been the idea as academics and this is very much a personal view. Our role is not really just to sit in libraries, but to profess 
publicly and accessibly about the things that we're studying, teaching and writing on. That doesn't mean you write the big footnote laden articles and books, but it also means that you go out and explain to people in the, in the wider world. And even thinking about this podcast today, it's made me think about my formative experiences being taught myself. I was, my undergraduate law degree was at the University of Lancaster at the time at which a lot of critical legal theorists had moved there en masse. And I remember reading African-American writer Patricia Williams, professor, a law professor, uh, her work, The Alchemy of Race and Rights, as an undergraduate student, and being very struck by what uh, law can mean, what it can mean to write about law, and what it can mean to be a law professor, and even the way that you know, Professor Patricia Williams wrote um, and the way in which she ha focuses on subject position, you know, and even the writing style, you know, a, a highly subjective writing style. And I know obviously critical race theory is now front and center of wider debates, but I think that all had a formative impact on my life, academic career, and what it means really to be engaged in wider society. And as you can see, no question you ask me will elicit a very concise answer. I welcome that, Colin. I welcome that. One of the themes from your academic work that I've taken is very much something you refer to there, which is the idea of academic work as a tool for social change and the idea of making things meaningful in practice. This was following up on something that you mentioned there. One of the areas in which there has been significant human rights change and achievement over recent decades has been in relation to society in Northern Ireland in terms of human rights provisions, in terms of the, the initiatives which have tried to make sure that there's a more human rights conscious society. Could you comment on your view of what has been achieved over recent decades in terms of human rights and Northern Ireland, both in terms of the things that have gone well and in terms of some of the limitations, shortcomings and obstacles? I'm going to take a step back f from the question and perhaps just position myself in, in all of that because for a variety of reasons, I've had a lot of reason recently to reflect on my own academic career and life here. Ult ultimately, I was born and brought up in, in Derry in the, you know, born in September 19. 70, really formative career brought up in social housing, Carnhill, then Connolly and Gallia and Derry, and has really lived through the conflict, you know, in, 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 in Derry. And I had a real, and I have always had a real sense of being part of this society, even when I lived elsewhere and when I've worked around the world. And I think what that has brought with it into an academic career that I'll be totally open and say I've never always felt entirely comfortable in because of, I suppose, where I'm from and my own background, always a sense of slight discomfort. I've never really felt that I was part of the club, right? Even though, and that might sound like a ridiculous thing to say for somebody who's a professor in one of the leading uh, law schools uh, across these islands, but I think that has sort of borne with me throughout my entire life. So what, what am I saying? I'm saying that I feel enormous responsibility, not just to write about the society, 
that 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 we live in, but to also do something about of some of the problems that it, that it faces. And the area of human rights and equality, which I spent a lot of time writing about, thinking about, and talking about, and trying to have an influence on as well, is, is essentially about making this space, wherever it eventually ends up and wherever it is now, a better place to inhabit for everyone who lives here. And in terms of my work in human rights, and again, reference where I started with refugees and asylum seekers and some of the most marginalized people who often get forgotten in some of these discussions. It's thinking about how you can make this region better given some of the promises that are made. And essentially, as many people have written about and talked about, many legal guarantees are promissory notes in a sense to wider society. And so the, the Good Friday Belfast Agreement, uh, the framework for where we are now very much makes a number of promises in relation to human rights and equality. Some of those have been brought to fruition. We, we have the Human Rights Act. There is a Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. There are a number of other mechanisms that are there. Some of them haven't been brought to, to fruition. So I think we acknowledge the progress that have been made. And in some senses at the moment, in a post-Brexit context in the UK, some of the discussion is, is simply holding on to what is there now. But I think we have to acknowledge that some of the promises that were around in the late 90s haven't materialised. You know, and the one that I've been very, very heavily involved with, both in my academic life, but also in public service as well on the Human Rights Commission, is, is a Bill of Rights for Northern Ireland, which remains work in progress and has re-emerged in the public domain recently. But, but not just in terms of thinking about a Bill of Rights for this society, but part of my work academic work and research has been looking around the world at how other societies do this, international experience, comparative examples, to see if there's anything useful to be found there that we could learn from. And that's been a big part of my work for the last couple of decades in terms of, yes, academic life, but also feeling as somebody from here who lives here and works here, and that is a very vibrant civil society it's about how you make this place better. And in a sense, how universities live up to some of the things we say about serving the communities that we're embedded in. And you mentioned living, working in this society, and you mentioned earlier on that Brexit has made a significant difference to the politics, obviously. And in some ways, Brexit's most dramatic effect has related to Ireland, Northern Ireland. Could you say something in relation, Colin, to your own areas of expertise on human rights and equality? initially um, about the effect of Brexit, about the degree to which Brexit is a watershed, about the things which Brexit has made precarious? Well, again, linking back to the, the Queen's role, one of the things that we spotted very early on were the potential implications of Brexit for equality and human rights and questions of social justice here. So one of the things we applied for with a number of colleagues here and in Ulster University and with CAJ locally for research funding, and we put together a project called Brexit NI, which explored all that. And I like to think that that in itself is an example of the sort of innovation that actually does happen on this campus and on this university. You know, we spot an emergent issue actually work together with the other university here and with a you know, civil society actor, CAJ, to, to, to have a look at the concerns that are being raised. And I think you know, it's well known that the Brexit appears to be part of a much larger 
uh, and, and concerning agenda about the sort of society that people want for the UK for the future. And some elements of that cause really quite grave concerns about equality, uh, human rights and social justice. You know, to put it very, very narrowly, that, that it envisages a sort of economic future that sees uh, radical deregulation across a range of areas in which there are social protections in place as a positive way to compete economically in the wider world. And I think that immediately raised alarm bells about the sort of European social model that has been built up around the European Union and the impact that it can have in an already multiply deprived society like Northern Ireland. So I think, you know, people are right to be concerned. Our research, which we, you know, worked on, went out and talked to people and published, you know, really confirmed a lot of the concerns that are there. And, you know, to, to map that forward at the start of the discussions, I can remember being in rooms with, with you where people will say things like, what's this got to do with human rights? And you map forward to something you may have heard of, the audience may have heard of the protocol. And, you know, Article 2 of the protocol contains a human rights and equality guarantee, a non-diminution guarantee that is radically neglected in the public debate, but it's actually quite a significant positive protection in that protocol. And I like to think that's an example of what really the Mitchell Institute and what Queen's does wonderfully well, actually, which is engage effectively in public debates and actually end up achieving really meaningful outcomes. And one of the things which your work speaks to is very much that aspect of both Queen's generally and the Mitchell Institute specifically, that it's facing outwards, not just inwards in terms of debate. One of the areas where you have been prominent also in recent times, Colin, in addition to the human rights specific aspects of the Brexit effect, has been the effect of Brexit on the United Kingdom itself. And some observers have suggested that Brexit's logic or the logic of the effects of Brexit will be to reignite the question of Scottish independence from the United Kingdom, but also to to make many nationalists within the North feel more skeptical about the post-Good Friday Agreement arrangement and dispensation, which had seemed to have considerable support and sympathy pre-Brexit. Could you comment on the current state in terms of constitutional fluidity, aspiration, anxiety, because obviously these things are contingent rather than inevitable. But can you give your sense of the Brexit effect to date on the constitutional question regarding Northern Ireland, its impact on post-Good Friday Agreement politics, its impact on the possible futures for this island and these islands? It's a great question. A lot of people are thinking about it. And again, I uh, obviously work at Queen's, so I have declare an interest. But again, thinking back, to be fair to Queen's, prior to that referendum, I remember a number of things were put together, including uh, little videos that we all did, uh, predicting and raising concerns about the potential impact of Brexit for uh, Northern Ireland. Uh, obviously, perhaps let's say that an impact Northern Ireland, but it didn't shape the eventual UK-wide outcome. But very, very serious implications for the island that are, that are well known uh, to listeners to, the, to this uh, podcast fundamentally put constitutional questions front and centre of the legal and political debate across these islands and more broadly right now. And, and many people feel, I think quite rightly, that it's had a detrimental impact on the debate and are very worried about the future. But again, 
One of the things that is important to highlight is that very quickly, I think people stepped into that space to do a number of th things that were useful, although the reaction to them has often been quite disproportionate. First of all, it's to clarify what precisely the terms of engagement here actually are. And to be clear that, you know, if you live in a region, jurisdiction, whatever you want to call it, whose constitutional status rests on uh, consent, and you've put together quite a complex architecture that respects the pluralism and diversity of that society. Sometimes it's just reminding people what precisely it is that has been agreed. And obviously the principle of consent, the corollary of that is the right to self-determination that is hardwired into the Good Friday Agreement and there wouldn't have been agreement without it uh, being there. It sets out a framework for how that will be taken forward. And in a context where part of the island is outside the European Union, even with the protocol, and part of it is in the European Union, it has always seemed to me to be a, a rather a tedious, boring and undramatic thing to say that this was always going to be a discussion and debate. So in my own work uh, with others, uh, and people can, can look back at this consistently stressed from very, very early days, the need for responsible management and preparation for the potential constitutional outcomes that might emerge from all of this. And universities must be central to that because there must be an evidence-based, well-sourced uh, uh, arguments developed uh, for where we might be going next on this island and no better place for that to happen than in a university context. You know, people use ad nauseum, the sort of Brexit example. I've been consistent and clear in all my academic work and in public engagement that I am, a, and in the recent publications from last year's part of the Orange Project, let the people decide, absolutely clear, I am a major advocate of very, very significant advanced planning for the concurrent referendums that are anticipated in the agreement, the debate around which has accelerated as a result of Brexit. And it seems to me universities have to be front and centre of doing that preparatory work, that we're clear about what the outcomes are, whatever people eventually decide. I would actually double back on that and say one of the magnificent things very often about this place, about this region, about this island, is that in a moment when things here could have tipped over very significantly, people have kept themselves very, very focused on solutions, pragmatic outcomes, proposing ways forward, and dare I say it, I sound, I sound like a, a bit of an advocate for the university where I work here, you know, but it's like, you know, academics have been front and centre, including from this university, in keeping the focus precisely on that. And I think instead of being peripheral to those conversations, Queen's University Belfast needs to take its place at the heart of those discussions, because in some senses we are uh, a pillar
pivot really for these islands. So we have a leadership role. And let me let me not dodge the the issue that you know, Richard, that we know that will be turbulent. And in this society, that will often be difficult and there may be consequences. But going back to where I started in terms of my own personal journey and my, my life and work here, we have a responsibility um, to not dodge the hard stuff. Uh, and final, final point uh, would be that, yes, we have a responsibility to write the, you know, 400 page tomes around that. But we also have a responsibility to influence and shape debates in a way that are accessible to people in the here and now. Yeah. And a big part of my academic career, actually, um, which is sometimes hard to explain in terms of the bureaucratic processes that shape our life and that we always have to fill in. I've very often written things in places that people look at me and they scratch their heads and think, why have you written that? for that place? Why haven't you put it somewhere else? Very often I've done that, learning from many of my predecessors in the law school at Queen's, because I'm very, very aware, and my days in Fortnite with Tom Haddon and others, that they, the well-timed, accessible side of A4 paper can often be crucially influential. So often it's who reads stuff. So I think someday when I'm long, long gone, when somebody pieces together the trail of my life and career, they'll eventually begin to join the dots and some of the things that I've done in my life that mightn't have had immediate rewards in my academic career may begin to make some sense. Well, it's been great today, Colin, hearing you join the dots so eloquently to hear about your ideas, about your arguments, about your research and about your view of the university and its social role. Uh, I hope it'll send people back to reading your research work and to engaging with you. But for today's insights in this podcast, profound thanks to Professor Colin Harvey. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard.